Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. This is our third week in a series that we're calling Trust in Trouble. Based around what was Jesus's probably least popular scripture, promise found in John 16 verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. And across the last few weeks, we've looked at the why of suffering and perhaps important, more importantly, what God does about it. That God meets us in our suffering. That suffering is never good, but that God is too good to let it be wasted. And that through the cross, we know that a day is coming when there will be no more suffering. That because of the cross, the worst thing is never the last thing. But that also... It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be angry at God. And that in our disappointment, we can still trust God. And a resource that we have, maybe when we can't bring ourselves to trust or pray, is worship. That corporate declaration of God's character. So on the back of that, today I want to look at the trouble with the valley. We all have valley moments, you know, Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of death. And sometimes that doesn't feel like an exaggeration. Sometimes life is really, really hard. And on the first week of our series, Jono said that we can ask of suffering, this too will shape me. The question is how? And today I want to revisit that. If, if it's a guarantee in life that we will have troubles, if the valley is not an optional detour, but maybe part of everyday life, how do we suffer well? And I don't mean valiantly or bravely, but how do we suffer in such a way that we are not destroyed by our suffering? That while it's not good, suffering is a symptom of sin, but the way in which we go through it doesn't make it worse. You know, Jesus has his own valley experiences, probably the most profound of which is his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before his arrest and crucifixion, knowing what was coming, Jesus prays. He comes to God in his suffering. Now, most of you know, but for those of you who don't, I'm a clinical psychologist, and a large part of my career has been dedicated to exactly this question, how do we process suffering? Horrible things happen, but how do we continue? And so today I want to look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I want to point out what he's doing and show you some of the evidence behind his behaviors, that Jesus is suffering and he just so happens to be suffering in a way that we now realize many, many, many years later is incredibly protective and healthy from a psychological perspective. Funny that, eh? <laughs> suffering is not good, but Jesus shows us how to suffer well. So if you turn with me to Mark 14, verses 32 to 36, it says this. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity that it is together, and to hear more about you. We thank you for this series, and we thank you for the ways that you've already moved. And we, we, um, we open our hearts this morning, and we yeah, God, we just ask that you would move again this morning, God. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. Help us to respond in a way that you want, God. We thank you that you're a faithful and good God, and we pray that we would learn more about your love for us this morning. Amen. So in Equip Her 2013, I felt God suggest that I should respond to an altar call for healing. So I'd been allergic to milk products for most of my life. 
But in, in the last two years before that time, it had gotten worse and worse, and to the point where I had to carry an EpiPen just in case I kind of got exposed to some milk. And so I responded, and I kind of went up there, and I was like, oh, actually, I've never really prayed to be healed before God. <laughs> but would you just heal me? And I felt different in that moment. And I was already booked in to do some medical challenges with a specialist a few weeks later because my allergies were actually expanding into peanuts. And so I just remember for those first few weeks just believing that I was healed and thanking God. And then the day of my appointment came. And on the day of the challenge, you know, they had an EpiPen and they had a, a heart defib and they had a drip just in case it all went wrong. And they gave me a sip of milk and we waited. And then they gave me a little bit more and a little bit more and more. And nothing happened. A well-documented allergy had just disappeared. And 10 years later, I can still have dairy. How cool is that? But then four weeks ago, my mum broke her back. And she's doing okay, but she's still in the hospital, and it's, it's a really long road to recovery. But what makes this harder is that this isn't the first bone that my mum has broken. You know, she has a raft of immune diseases, which means that broken bones and a lot more are just normal for her. Got my tissues? <laughs> But Abba, a father, everything is possible for you. But how can that be? How can God let me enjoy cheese on pizza and not heal my mum? <laughs> you know, I know the power of God and I know the silence of God. And sometimes I think I'd handle the silence better if power was never on the table at all. You know, maybe it, would have been, maybe it would be easier if we just had a God who worked like an operating system that we just pressed a button and he delivered predictable results. <laughs> but that's not the God revealed on the pages of Scripture. And it's not the God that I know. So today I want to talk about the trouble in the valley. Because as much as hope sounds nice, and we all do want to have hope, the reality is that hope can hurt so how do we hold on to hope in the midst of hardship? You know, we don't want suffering to destroy us. So how do we suffer well? In the Garden of Gethsemane, we witness Jesus suffering pain at many levels, physically, psychologically, and spiritually. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And Luke tells us that as he prayed, his sweat was like drops of blood. That's not just disturbing poetic imagery. You know, there's a rare medical condition called hematidrosis. I hope I'm saying that right. But in which capillaries around the sweat glands can rupture under extreme anxiety and stress, causing you to sweat blood. And I don't say that to make our stomachs turn. I'm already feeling queasy. <laughs> but to establish that in Gethsemane, Jesus is suffering. You know, we can read it with the end in mind and the knowledge of who Jesus is, and we can assume that the cross was maybe just an unpleasant chore to get through, but Jesus suffered, and Jesus understands suffering. So whatever our struggle, be it grief and loss, whether you struggle with unanswered prayer, or even a numbness, a spiritual void in which God seems to have abandoned you. Jesus truly understands. He's gone ahead of us and he's shown us how to endure, endure disorientation and pain, how to suffer well. So a few things I think we can see today if we're taking notes. The first one happens so quickly we might miss it, but it's so, so important. Jesus shows us that number one, in suffering, we can choose to be vulnerable with our friends. Mark 14, verse 33 to 34 says, he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus needed his three best friends by his side in his darkest hour. He didn't try to put on a brave face. 
He didn't pretend to be okay. He chose to include them in his distress and even asked them to watch over him in prayer. There's a strong temptation towards self-isolation when life gets hard. You know, we want to withdraw, we want to roll up like a hedgehog or hide away alone. But Jesus modeled the opposite. He actively involved his friends. He let them know what he was going through. He asked for their support in prayer. You know, we've just finished our series on It's a Group Thing, so I won't go into this too much, but we know that social supports are strongly linked with well-being. Those connected into a community reap the benefits ranging from physical health, self-esteem, all the way through to the ability to reach goals. So while suffering isn't something that we choose, suffering alone or suffering in community is something. So if you're going through it today, you don't have to do so alone. At the end of every service, we have a space for prayer. Take a step towards community. Ask someone to stand with you. The second thing that we see Jesus doing, again, we almost fly straight past it, but that Jesus shows us in suffering, we can choose to push into prayer. In Luke 22, verse 44, it says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. Matthew 26, verses 39 says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. The temptation to isolate ourselves from others in times of trouble can also apply to our relationship with God. We need community, we need friends, but we also need more than just our friends. We need to bring our pain and our sorrow to God in prayer, which for some of us makes us a little bit uncomfortable, like we're maybe bringing something dirty to God or something that he's gonna be mad at us for. But I want to suggest that wrestling with God through prayer isn't something to be ashamed of. It's a confirmation of belief. It's only because of our faith that we're mad at all. You know, it's only those of us who believe and believe hard, hard enough to walk out on a limb in faith with our full weight, then maybe feel that limb snap beneath us and then send us into a free fall. It's only us, those of us, who care to wrestle with God. You know, Parker Palmer puts it this way. The deeper our faith, the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we also find ourselves living without hope, faith, and love. You know, when we hide from God because of our anger or hurt or disappointment or grief, we're also inadvertently hiding ourselves from hope and faith and love. You know, even when all we have are angry shouts, let suffering push us into prayer. And just to be clear, angry shouts count as a prayer. Just read through the Psalms. And so Jesus falls to his knees in Gethsemane just hours before his arrest and crucifixion. And a prayer spills out of his anguished soul. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And it's this prayer these words of Jesus that I want to spend the remainder of the time focusing on. Because I believe these words have a great deal to teach us about how to pray in difficult times, how to suffer well. So point number three, Jesus shows us that in suffering, we can hold on to God's love. As Jesus prays in Gethsemane, we are granted one of the, his most moving insights. All three Gospels record that in his darkest hour, Jesus addressed his prayers to the Father. But it's the Gospel of Mark that notes that Jesus uses the same word for God as a child crying in the playground would for their dad, an intimate Aramaic word called Abba. 
It's almost certain that Mark wrote the gospel in Greek, but there here he chooses to use the word in Jesus' original language to drive home a point. He wants us to catch a glimpse of the intimacy and humanity of this interaction. This is the only time in the Bible in which Jesus addresses God as Abba, and he's doing so at the time of his greatest vulnerability. Andrew Murray, who's a South African writer, once said, the power of prayer depends almost entirely upon our apprehension of of who it is with whom we speak. When life hurts, we need to come to God. And we need to come, and we need to remind ourselves of who we are coming to. To look into the face of our Father in heaven and to realize that his eyes are not angry, bored, cold, assessing the merits of our request or judging the techniques of our prayer. But he is a loving, kind Father, Abba. You know, Jesus shows us this in his suffering when his soul was overwhelmed. Jesus anchored himself in his father's love. His starting point in prayer was Abba, Father. He didn't say, if you really cared about me, you wouldn't make me go through this. For Jesus, the father's love was non-negotiable. And when I think of my mum and I struggle to make sense of the suffering, an unanswered prayer. I think it's natural to wonder why God doesn't just click his fingers and make everything better. When there's nothing good in the pain and we maybe feel helpless or hopeless, it's tempting to doubt God's kindness and to pull away from him. But I've found this is also the very time that I need his comfort more than ever. You know, I can't change what I'm going through, but I can determine if I embrace God as loving in it. Which might make you ask, how can you embrace God as loving if he's not doing what you want? Wouldn't a loving God answer your prayers? To which I think it's vital to realize that we can trust what we cannot understand. There's a type of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT. Central to DBT is this idea of holding two truths in tension. That two things that seem opposite can both be true at the same time. Something can be true, but also not fully understandable. And we do this in a lot of areas. You can have both fear and courage at the same time. Um, or I want to change, and I'm afraid of changing. I'm angry with you, and I will treat you with respect. I'm happy for you, and I'm sad for myself. You can accept someone and disagree with them at the same time, or I didn't cause all my problems, and I can't just wait for them to go away on their own. God can be good, and the world can be confusing. You know, we can trust what we cannot understand. In our confusion, the question is, what will we hold on to? If we reject God in an attempt to reject discomfort or doubt, do we also reject love? Point number four. Jesus shows us that in his suffering, we can hold out for God's power. Having addressed himself affectionately to God as Father, Jesus affirms his power and his capacity. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. If the first temptation when we suffer is to isolate ourselves, and the second is to question God's love, the third is to doubt his power. There's this old Hebrew saying, which is quite funny, but it says, God is not a kindly old uncle. He is an earthquake. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the best news possible when we're struggling with suffering and unanswered prayer. 
Because while there is comfort in the present in receiving God's love, there's a hope for the future in his power. You know, an earthquake can shift things. I don't think a kindly old uncle can as much. But when we encounter suffering, we usually question one of two things about God. His love, God, why don't you care? Or his power, God, why can't you help? Maybe it's not as overt or direct as God, why can't you? Or you can't. But as Jono spoke of the first week, we behave as if he can't or don't think that he will. We stop asking, we stop dreaming, we stop hoping. By downgrading our expectations in prayer, we attempt to protect ourselves from the heartache of dashed hope. But Jesus doesn't pray, Abba, Father, a few things are possible for you. I wish you were able to take this cup from me, but I know you can't. And, and maybe at first it seems like he should have, as Jesus dies and is buried Friday and Saturday. It seems as if maybe God is uncaring or unable. But with Easter Sunday comes the truth that God can work miracles. He's loving and powerful, and there is hope. Because of the cross, the worst thing is never the last thing. God joins us in our suffering, and there is a day when all will be made right. And this is so important because I think even when we feel like we can't trust God, when we're mad or disappointed, getting rid of God's love and power doesn't actually help us. In fact, it makes it so much worse. When you remove God, what are we left with? You're alone in a meaningless universe, suffering without purpose, consequence or hope. But by holding on to God when times are tough, we retain the possibility of rescue. We receive comfort in our distress, a sense of purpose in our pain, and ultimately the hope of life after death. And we know that hope is precious. Psychologically, while hope is connected to emotions, it's also considered a way of thinking or a state of being. Having hope involves optimism, motivation, and strategy. Practically, it looks like taking steps towards a goal, not just wishing that things would be different. We know that higher levels of hope are linked to better outcomes in mental health, physical health, academics, athletics. More hope means more positive emotions, stronger sense of purpose, lower levels of depression, and less isolation. So when we avoid discomfort by downgrading God's capacity, we can also lose hope. Hoping can be hard, but a world without hope is so much worse. Are we good this morning, church? <laughs> Number five, Jesus shows us that in suffering we can be honest. Because I want to be clear, though, hope is not pretending that everything is okay. Jesus holds on to God's love and power, and he's honest. Take this cup from me. Jesus asks God for an alternative to the cross. This is Jesus at his most vulnerable, and he appears to be praying unbiblically. You know, this might not be considered the type of prayer that messiahs would, are supposed to pray. In fact, there was a really interesting comparison to draw between Jesus' Gethsemane prayer and the prayer that he teaches us, the Lord's Prayer. Both start with the Father and his power. But then Jesus goes off script. He flips it around, swapping your kingdom come for the exact opposite. Take this cup from me. The contrast between what he is meant to pray at this point and what he actually does say is quite startling. Jesus shows us that it's okay to grieve and cry, to plead with God and to wonder why. In fact, it's more than okay. 
It's affirmed as something that expresses his heart because God accepts our honesty. And this is so important because often our response to suffering and pain is to pretend. If we can ignore it, if we can keep a happy facade even to God, maybe it will go away. Or some people attempt to put on a brave face when they suffer. They pretend that everything's fine when in fact they're terrified and maybe falling apart. You know, others try to manipulate God by playing religious games, saying the things that he wants, that they think he wants them to say. I mean, who hasn't tried to strike a deal with God (laughs) when we're desperate for a miracle, eh? And it's hard to overstate the extent to which these five words at the heart of Christ's prayer in Gethsemane have given permission to people ever since to pray imperfectly, honestly, and even improperly at times of troubles. Peter Gregg puts it this way in his book, God on Mute. When we open our hearts to be honest with God in prayer, he hears us and steps through the door to be with us totally unfazed by the mess of our interior world. The thing that keeps God out of our lives is not sin, not our sin. It is our compulsion to pretend, to cover up our nakedness with fig leaves, to climb sycamore trees in order to see without being seen. And when we do, he will sometimes look up laughing and invite himself to tea. And again, psychologically, we see this. There's a concept that we call name it to tame it. Because putting feelings into words can actually reduce the force of unpleasant emotions. By naming what we are feeling, we reduce the intensity and we feel less overwhelmed. We can't heal from what we're hiding from. And so honesty with God, naming what we're feeling, it's so important God encourages us to do it. It's a continual example in the Bible. And it's for us. If God is God, he doesn't need us to tell him. But for our sake, he wants us to. And then point number six, Jesus shows us that in suffering, we can choose trust. In the midst of suffering, in agony and sweating blood, Jesus concludes his prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will. This isn't some throwaway line or platitude. See, the power to choose, to choose to yield our will, is according to Scripture, the defining human opportunity. In in Eden, Adam and Eve choose not your will, but ours. They rejected God, seeking to define God, and evil, good and evil for themselves. And that's the origin of sin and suffering. And so Jesus makes another choice that will reverse the one made at the beginning. Every human instinct of survival cries out against what Jesus knows he must do. Every rational argument insists on self-preservation. No wonder Jesus cries, take this cup from me. And surely on hearing the cry, there are tears in the father's eyes and his hand moves to take the cup. Yet, and on that single word from Jesus, I imagine kind of like time standing still, God just wait, father waiting there. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus overcomes evil by yielding. And in doing so, he shows us how to suffer well. By embracing the relationship he won for us. We're not God and we don't have to be. We can reject the mistake of Eden. We can choose to give over to God what we can't handle. And yielding is actually central to mental health and well-being too. There's a type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. Yep, we love our acronyms. But ACT is probably the most biblical therapy. 
and it's all about accepting things that we cannot change or are out of our control and committing to stuff that we can. Because whatever our worldview, there are things that we cannot influence. And so what do we do with that? Evidence shows us as well that the most helpful thing is to yield. Resisting and struggling with things that are out of our control leads to more distress and poorer well-being. A metaphor that we use a lot is that of being caught in a riptide. You know, if you're caught in a rip and you try frantically to swim to shore, it's not going to accomplish anything other than exhausting you. It puts you in a worse position. On the other hand, if you stop resisting and yield, you know, I can't change this tide, I'll wait until I can do something. It will release you and you'll be able to swim to shore. You never wanted to be in that riptide. You're definitely not celebrating being in it, but yielding is the fastest way out. You know, we have a unique position as people of faith in that we're not just trusting the universe, we just give it to God. You know, God, I don't know where this tide goes, but you do, and I want out. But you are good, and you're working. So I'll be honest, I'll let you know what I'd like to see happen here, and then I'll yield, because not my will, but your will be done. So just to recap, and if I can have the band up, that'd be awesome, thanks. But Jesus doesn't suffer alone. He chooses to be vulnerable with those close to him. He chooses to let his suffering push him into prayer, not away from God. In his praying, he holds on to God's love, Abba, Father, and to God's power. You know, everything is possible for you. He's honest, take this cup from me. And yet he yields, not my will, but your will be done. To which we might say, but that's Jesus. (laughs) He's God in flesh, I can't do that. (laughs) So to finish, I've got one final story. That's of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was almost certainly the same person as Mary of Bethany, the sinful yet extravagant worshiper who poured out out perfume and wept her tears upon the feet of Jesus at a dinner party less than a week before he died. We know for sure that she had been set free from multiple demonic strongholds and that in her gratitude, She became one of the wealthy women who supported Jesus financially. She was taught by Jesus and she followed Jesus. And Mary Magdalene was also one of only five people that the Bible records as being at the foot of Jesus's cross when he died. Mary stayed there right to the end. And when Jesus's body was taken down from the cross, she followed to see where they buried him. We can assume that she went out at dusk on Holy Saturday when the Sabbath had officially finished to purchase the spices for Jesus' body because dawn the next day found Mary Magdalene returning to the burial garden. When our prayers seem to go unanswered, when we encounter pain and suffering, if we're honest, most of us become resentful or apathetic. But Mary shows a different way. She still hurts. I'm sure she's still confused. But she holds tight to love, to hope. Mary encountered the love and hope of Jesus and her response was worship, an extravagant worship. And she continued to pour her resources and life into her ministry. And when he had died, when love and hope seem lost and suffering is all that she knows, she goes out to buy spices, to dress his body, to honour him. The one she thought was the Messiah, who now lies dead. I'm sure she was mad, angry, sad, 
confused. And yet she comes to the garden to worship. And she discovers that Jesus' body was missing. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have taken him. Even in her disappointment, she comes as an act of love and still calls Jesus Lord. And in the garden, in her suffering, in her worship, she meets someone. You know, John 20, verses 14 to 18 says this. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said, that he had said these things to her. How beautiful is it that the first person on earth to see Jesus after resurrection does so through tears and suffering and worship. And perhaps it's the tears or maybe the early morning light or simply the impossibility of, the re- of reality. But when Mary first sees Jesus, she mistakes him for a gardener. He's the alpha and the omega, creator of heavens and earth. But he himself is mistaken for a humble gardener with dirt beneath his fingernails at the beginning of a working day. The first to see hope, to see the new creation, to see Jesus risen, is a grieving woman. Why? Like Jesus, in her suffering, she pushes into God. She worships, acting in love and calling Him Lord. She's honest. She's crying at the grave. And she encounters God. And the first words of the new covenant are a question. Jesus' first words post the resurrection are not an announcement. It's not trumpets. It's not kicking down the temple doors yelling, I'm back. But it's a question to a weeping woman. Why are you crying? Jesus knows. He knows why. But he meets Mary in her suffering, her grief and her pain. And he calls her by name. And then Mary runs to tell the disciples the incredible news that Jesus had risen from the grave. And what does he tell her to tell them? What are his first words of the gospel? He calls them his brothers. And he wants them to know that his God explicitly is their God. That his Abba Father is theirs. You know, the cross means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Suffering still hurts, but we have a promise that it will be made right. We have His presence. He's with us in suffering. And so to finish, if you would stand up. The team and I would love to bring a song. It's called Joy in the Morning. And whatever your situation is today, I pray that in it, that you encounter hope, that you would know it's not done yet. It might still hurt. You might always miss them. We might have questions, but if it's not good, He's not done. Because the cross means that the worst thing is never the last thing. His mercies are new every morning. So hold on. So feel free to respond or we're going to sing.
Everything happens for a reason, but you don't know what you don't know. And you'll never have peace if you don't let go of tomorrow. Cause it ain't even fate till your plan falls apart, but you still choose to follow. If it doesn't make sense right now, it will when it's over. feels that that you're weeping in the night but the bible promises us that there are new mercies every morning that you don't have to stay in the valley that joy is on the horizon that joy is available to you that we serve a god who is powerful who is loving we serve a god where there is hope so this morning if that's you the altar's open If you need an encounter with God, if you're in the valley, if you need a change in your perspective, if you need to lift your eyes, or if life is just a bit dull and you need more joy, come down to the front. Joy is on 
Maybe we're holding back this morning. You know, maybe you're not in the valley, but I just feel for some of us, life has lost its color a little bit. Maybe you've been worn down by stuff that's been happening. Maybe just little things, but lots all at once. And maybe we've forgotten the promise of joy. And maybe, maybe you just... Maybe we just need to lift our perspective today and see that there is a God who's moving, even if we might not be able to see it, that we serve a trustworthy God. He's moving in our situations. And He's here. If you need to respond this morning, don't leave this place. God is moving.
Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.